Take your scriptures and open to Luke chapter 5, where we just read from. Thankful for our music team. Our piano player and bass player are in the Philippines, and our cajon player is out of town. And I'm still thankful, very thankful for those who, even through the variety and adjustments, uh, continue to lead us in worship. If I look happier and more tired than normal, it's because my three-year-old granddaughter is in for a visit. And if I'm anywhere out in the room, I'm on the floor playing with a trolley or seeing her dress up like a princess, but it really is great to have my daughter and my granddaughter in town for a visit. Let's pray. God, help us as we look at your word not just as black words on a white page, but as your living word to us, a revelation of yourself to us. And even as Kathy prayed, help us to learn what you want us to learn from this text. Help us not to go away unchanged, unaffected, just as though we have learned more about an ancient book. Help us to know you better experientially. Help us in this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I was looking at this text uh, particularly. I had a hope in my heart that someday the, the era of popular Christian ministers, of celebrity pastors, will soon come to an end. Because it simply does not say the right thing about Jesus or those who follow him. I think when you read Luke chapter 5, you get that sense. There he is up north in provincial Galilee. The word Gennesaret, uh, the Sea of Gennesaret, is just another word, another title for the Sea of Galilee. It's up in that rural area. I've spent about seven days up in that area. It's still provincial. You can still wake up into the silence of a rural community and hear the birds singing and walk on the dirt paths, look across the Sea of Galilee and see Capernaum, but there's still something preserved of its simplicity. R.T. France said, The kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed corner of provincial Galilee. That's what we see this morning in Luke chapter 5. It's different than a lot of ministry put forward today. It's refreshing. It removes the glitter, the religious costumes, and the, the exhausting pursuit of professionalism. Jesus calls ordinary fishermen, two sets of brothers actually, four fishermen, and he uses a boat as a pulpit. And soon he will only be able to teach outside because the synagogues don't want the Son of God teaching for them. Think about that. There are churches today that don't want Jesus in them because they have their own agenda and they're doing fine financially and they've got beautifully ornate buildings and they've said no to the Son of God from within their religious walls. It's no different than when we see Jesus in Galilee, an ordinary fisherman's boat as a pulpit, and he catches Peter and three other men 
to catch souls in the sea of humanity. It's beautiful. It's a picture, and it's a miracle, and it's a call. And Jesus turns the great catch of fish, which is the miracle, into a parable about catching people for the kingdom of God. And I want us to see highlands like that this morning. I want us to see highlands as a boat, if you would, an old fisherman's boat that is casting nets to catch people. That's what Jesus calls us to do. In other words, Jesus was not merely teaching the word as he sat in a boat. He was showing us something. By his actions and words, he is showing us what it means for his followers to catch people for the kingdom. You see, people often equate ministry with a mega model of visible success. We have a beautiful building, but it's not about beautiful buildings or highly trained and beautifully gifted people or gender and age-specific conferences and programs and impressive results because everything I just listed were absent in Jesus' ministry, which means they're not central. They're not essential, if you would. Kind of chuckled to myself when I thought about Jesus never having gone to Awana or Jesus never having sang in the choir or Jesus not being part of a teen group. And it's not that those things are bad. Sometimes they're very effective tools. But those things are absent in Christ's ministry, meaning they're not the center or the essence. And here he goes, and think about this. He goes down the dirt trail to the lakeside, away from the synagogue, away from the trained priests, away from the rabbis, and he catches fishermen. Ordinary people. Calloused hands, sunburnt, sweaty, smelling like fish and seawater. And he says, follow me. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Follow me because you're the exact kind of people that I'm going to build my church with. This should come as an incredible encouragement to us that God calls ordinary, simple people to be his disciples. Disciple simply means a follower, learner. And Jesus says, follow me. Learn from me, fishermen tax collectors, political zealots, men and women and children and blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a beautiful picture. God takes sinners and transforms them into instruments of His grace. That God invites sinners, imperfect people, to proclaim a message of goodness and grace. Look at how he calls the first disciples. It was already read for us. It's only 11 verses. Let's look at this again. Luke chapter 5, verse, verses 1 to 2. On one occasion, while life is being lived, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen... By the way, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James and John, two sets of brothers, 
the fishermen had gone out of them, out of their boats, and were washing their nets. Here's the picture. A crowd of people are down by the lakeside, pressing in to hear Jesus do what? They didn't know he was going to perform a miracle. They are pressing in to hear preaching. That's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching. And you have this group gathered down by the lakeside, but off to the side there are four men. They're fishermen. They're washing their nets. They're not there necessarily to hear preaching. They were there finishing an evening of work. They were partners with these two other brothers. And that evening of work was a failure. That evening of work was a waste of time. It's a simple scene, quiet, other than the workers, the birds, and the teaching, and the waves washing up on the shore. And these four men needed to clean their nets. By the way, it's probably what the majority of a fisherman's life was spent on, cleaning the nets, made out of linen, fragile, effective, but if they weren't cleaned and dried each day, they would become brittle and they would rot, and their tools would be ineffective. Probably what made it more discouraging for these four men off to the side, by the way, was that they had to wash their night their nets after a night of catching nothing. Look at verse 3. Getting into one of the boats. That's what Jesus did. He got into one of the boats, which happens to be whose? Can you see that in verse 3? Whose boat? Peter's. Simon... Okay, Simon Peter, this is the same person, Peter, one of the primary disciples of Jesus. By divine design, Jesus gets into Peter's boat. If you would, he's about to net Simon. He has Simon as a captive audience. And do you know Jesus still does this? It's subtle. It's personal. But he gets in to Simon's boat. He gets into our life in the most unexpected ways after a night of failure, after a night of discouragement, when you're off to the side and you're not even there to hear his voice, he gets into your boat. To avoid the crush of the people, Jesus gets into Simon's boat as a pulpit and the water as a type of amphitheater. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished Speaking, he's done teaching, he's done preaching. The sermon's at a close. He said to Simon, he singles Simon out, and what does he tell him? You see that in verse 4? Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Wait a minute, we just cleaned the nets. There's no fish. He finished washing his nets, probably has placed them back into the boat. He's already pushed the boat back at Jesus' request. And a carpenter asks a seasoned veteran fisherman to go back out and do what he just failed at. An itinerant preacher telling a veteran mariner it's time to go fishing. I want to pause there and I want you to like, feel the, the ridiculousness of the situation. A carpenter telling a fisherman to fish at the daytime, which is not the best time, with nets. Fish are not blind. In the deep, 
when the shallows might be better, after a night when the fishing was not good. Their desire, their passion is low. And this carpenter says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. And that's the point. Certainly, they did not want to head back. Look at verse 5. Peter even protests gently. He does it respectfully. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter displays humility and respect. He calls Jesus Master. It's a term only incorporated by Luke. It means a person of authority or commander or chief. There's something about Jesus, though, that compelled Simon to obey, that compelled a seasoned fisherman to obey this teacher. Perhaps when he was cleaning the nets, he heard something. He was impressed. Matthew even records that Jesus taught them with authority, not as their own scribes taught them. Perhaps he's sitting there seemingly unengaged, but he heard something about Jesus' words that struck him. And he responds to Jesus' leading. We have toiled all night and taken nothing, yet at your word, and that's what Peter's been hearing, I will let down the nets. Do you know if Peter had not obeyed that first seemingly nonsensical command, he would have never experienced the miracle of blessing? Had Peter not just simply obeyed Jesus when it didn't make sense? It, it made no sense to obey Jesus in this particular situation. And if he hadn't obeyed, number one, he would not have participated in this miracle of blessing, but neither would he understood further who Jesus is. And that's the question Luke is answering for us. Who is Jesus? And right here in Luke chapter 5, you get a picture. And I wonder if the other people gathered by the lake, sort of this spectacle, two boats, four men, two sets of brothers, seasoned fishermen, and a carpenter takes command of their ship and its crew. What were the other people thinking? They had been out all night and caught. They knew they caught nothing. There's no fish on the shore. There's no fish on the boat. They're cleaning their nets. They failed. And now Jesus says, launch out and let down your nets. Look at verse 6. Now, the miracle happens so quick and it's so simple, and there's not even a whole lot of detail. But when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's the miracle. And that's a surprise. I think a miracle is always a surprise. But I think the greatest surprise is actually Peter's reaction. Because along with the great catch of fish, something happens in Peter's heart Something profound and deep moves Peter. And rather than focusing on this amazing catch of fish, which would have been incredible income, right? They're partners. This is a business. This is not leisure fishing. They 
trust in the income of this fish to support their families. But look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. I don't know where the fish are at this point, but both boats are sinking. I don't know if the fish are still in the nets on the side of the boat. I don't know if Peter just falls down on, on the top of these fish. But what we do know is he bows down and his head is on the level of Jesus' knees. And look at what he says. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Let me ask you a question. Who said anything about sin? (laughs) Let out your boat in the the deep, in the daytime, and then let your net down. And And he says, depart from me. He's in the same boat with Jesus, but he realizes now something a little more about who Jesus is, and he realizes he's not worthy to be in his presence, that this is not just a human. Someone special is in my boat, and he bows down in the midst of the fish, and he says, I am a sinful man. Maybe Jesus had talked about that in his sermon at the coast. But there's no record of him teaching about sin. Do you know one of the most beautiful things is not when someone is shamed and strong-armed into thinking they're a sinner, but when you actually see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and you know in your heart that in his presence you are a sinner. That in the midst of his holiness and beauty, You simply accept all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Here's what struck him. Look at verse 9. For he, for Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon And Simon falls down with awe and conviction. And I thought of Romans 2, verse 4, where it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here you have probably the greatest day of business in Peter's life. And it was God's goodness and kindness that led him to repentance. An awareness of who Jesus is. And I I want you to see Jesus' reply. There's two parts. There's comfort and there's a call. There's, There's encouragement and there's a commission. Look at verse 10, the second part. And Jesus said to Simon... Do not be afraid. See, he was afraid. He's in the presence of the Son of God. He's in the presence of holiness. Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And the answer when we get to the end of the the text of what Luke has recorded for us, so what is this passage here for? Or so what? I was told by A pulpit speech teacher once that when you're teaching, look out at everybody listening to you and see two words on everybody's forehead. And I don't see this every week, by the way, so 
if you're wondering how I view you. But he said, look at these two words, so what? So what did that just have to do with me? Because I'm going to guess that most of you this morning will not be called to full-time ministry. Most of you will not leave your occupation and working with your father and go and follow Jesus into full-time ministry. And maybe there is someone here that that's what God intends to do, but that's, that can't be the only meaning of this passage. So what does it mean? So what does it mean for this passage to be here for each of us? Well, the miracle is a metaphor of a spiritual reality. The miracle was real. The miracle was a real reality that happened, but it's something bigger. There's a spiritual reality that the miracle points to. Fishing becomes a picture of catching souls alive. You see, the fishermen aren't using hooks. They're using nets. Three things. First, in this passage, for all of us, Jesus helps us understand the kingdom of God. We understand what the kingdom of God is really about. See, we find the Messiah, the promised one, the rescuer, deliverer, walking alongside the lake and inviting two pairs of brothers, each fisherman, to accompany him on mission. The Son of God himself has chosen not to do mission alone. He invites us to be partners with him in that. And to me, what is so remarkable is how completely unremarkable the Master's plan is. He chooses ordinary people. I could just go from section to section this morning and start calling out names and say God chooses you and you and God chooses you and ordinary you and God chooses non-sensational you and unpopular, unpopular you and ordinary me. I've never had a sermon that's gone viral. I've never been reposted a thousand times. He chooses, but you know the encouragement is as I go to Luke chapter 5? This is who he invites. This is what his kingdom is. He invites ordinary people. You see, Jesus' mission does not conform to the conventional standards of greatness. He doesn't have great armies or cultic followers. Matter of fact, on one occasion, it says that everybody left him in John chapter 6. And he turns to the twelve, four of whom are fishermen, and he says, will you also leave? And it was Peter who said, you know the words, to whom shall we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. He doesn't have ornate buildings. He didn't use fine arts, honorific titles, he even said, don't let anyone call you father or teacher. Elite positions or incredible results. If we use today's ministry standards on Jesus towards the end of his ministry, he was a failure. But that also helps us define the kingdom of God. It also shows us by what standards God chooses he rewards faithfulness the men that jesus chose were ordinary and they were ordinary in every way and you know what even after he calls them 
They will fail. Do you remember a time when Peter failed? They will disappoint. They will underachieve. And they will overreact. And yet God continues to use them. They are human just like you and me. And to me, that is a beautiful picture in Luke chapter 5. A flawed and vulnerable band of men in their weakness through whom God's purposes will be established. Two pairs of brothers, four fishermen, men who were longing for true spirituality, men who didn't even gather for the sermon that morning. And guess who showed up on the shores while they were washing their nets? The Son of God. Second, Jesus teaches not just what his kingdom is, but what fishing for souls entails. What would you expect the fishing of souls in South Denver to look like? We just need to get in that right conference speaker and go through the right methodology and then go out and incorporate it and get a thousand people to pray a prayer after us. Do you see that here? I think there's three things Jesus teaches us about fishing for souls. Number one, teach the Word of God. Look at verse 1. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God. On another occasion, he says, I need to go to the other towns and cities also so that I can preach the Gospel. In verse 3, he sat down and taught the people from the boat. That's the means God uses to catch souls. Scripture. Truth. His Word. Acts 19, 9-10, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This is the Apostle Paul. Guess how he responded to the stubborn unbelief? He reasoned daily in the hall. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Catching souls involves teaching. And the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would say to the church at Corinth, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. J. Vernon McGee said, every pulpit is a fishing boat. And I would say every church is a fishing boat. At the end of Luke, 20, at the end of Luke in, in chapter 24, Jesus, listen to what Jesus said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, that everything written, that's Scripture, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is the resurrected Christ after all these events had taken place. Guess what he did? Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. That's what fishing for souls looks like, teaching. Secondly, it involves obeying Jesus. 
Look at verse 4. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon gave his excuse, but then said, but at your word I will let down the nets. How do we obey Jesus? Right before he ascends to the Father, he says what to the disciples? Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. You know what he says first? Teaching them. And then third, this takes humility. Look at verse 5. Simon answered, Master. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, that's different than saying, Wow, look at that. We obeyed Jesus and he blessed us. The biggest catch of fish ever. We can start our own program, put our own name on it, our own designer label ministry called Obey, Obey Jesus and get a lot of fish. And that's not what he did. He falls down in the boat in complete humility. And he says, depart from me. An arrogant, man-centered, know-it-all witness contradicts God's grace. Humility magnifies God's grace. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, has a chapter on evangelical humiliation where he says this, a truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And finally, what is involved in catching souls in the sea of humanity? Look at verse 11. It's the one verse we haven't read together. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus changes people's priorities. We teach we obey, and we place him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And, I, and, and the final point I want to make before I close in prayer is this. The same word for a large catch of fish, multitudes, is used in Acts when we see Peter catching humans by the netful. He said this, to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it says this, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Same word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 5. In Acts 14, verse 1, in Iconium, a large number of people believed. Because of his teaching and preaching, because of his obedience, because of his humility, Peter starts catching souls by the netful. Philippians 3.8 says this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is what I know from Luke chapter 5. God has called us, an ordinary church, to catch people for the kingdom of God. Share the word, obey Jesus, and humble yourself. And it does take humility to share Christ with others, doesn't it? Well, let me pray 
for us to see God's miraculous power enabling Highlands to do just this. Sharing Christ, Scripture-centered, following Jesus, obeying Him, and humbling ourselves because that's the nature of Christ. Let's pray.